Well, they, they say that there's two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Although I think death is not as certain as we might think, is it? We'll all die, that's certain, but when will we die? That's not certain at all, is it? It could be a long way off, it could be tomorrow, it could be today. And so most of us just continue through life not thinking about it that much until it confronts us. And often when people find out they've only got a certain amount of time left to live, it can give their lives clarity, can't it? Sometimes when people find out they have three months or six months left to live, they start writing lists of things they'd like to achieve before they die. That second film clip was from a movie called The Bucket List. Bucket list is a term of a list of things you want to do before you kick the bucket. And in the movie, two men who meet in a terminal cancer ward decide to go on a road trip before they die to do the things they want to do. There's a website on the internet called deathclock.com where you can put in your date of birth, your body mass, whether you're a smoker and so on, and it will predict your date of death. Apparently, my date of death is Friday, May 19, 2045. I personally thought that was a bit optimistic, but there you go. Now, that's just a gimmick though, isn't it? Death is certain, but yet it is so uncertain. And that's what we're thinking about this morning as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, the certainty and uncertainty of life and death. So firstly, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and think about the uncertainty of life under the sun. You can see that on your outline. Then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and think about the certainty of life under the sun, but the Son of God, S-O-N, the Son of God, and the clarity that we can have about life because of Jesus. But firstly, the uncertainty of life under the sun, S-U-N, this sun out there. Ecclesiastes, as you might have remembered from last week and the week before, is written by King Solomon, and he is observing life under the sun, life on the earth. And that phrase, under the sun, comes up 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, life as we can observe it, life by looking out on the world. And I think that's why in Ecclesiastes we come across some things that we might disagree with. This is what you can work out about the world just by observing it. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, King Solomon is trying to find some certainty, some pattern, some meaning to life, and so we have this poem about the times. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, and so on. This poem is taking all the things in life that we might describe as unpredictable and the main idea seems to be that no matter what circumstances we come across in life, they do all have their place at the appropriate time. And so the conclusion of the poem down in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now that is true, isn't it? Some things don't happen at the right time, but at the right time, 
There is beauty in most things. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born. See, at the right time, to bring a new baby into the world is a beautiful thing. And yet at the wrong time, it can be devastating. If a mother is not healthy, if the birth is premature, there's a time to be born. There's a time when birth is beautiful. There's a time to die. Now, death is never good, but there are times when we would see someone die and say, that was the best thing for them. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot. If you've got a vegetable garden, you'll know the weather's right. You've had a talk to Belinda Lawrence. It's the time to plant the carrots. The garden is weeded, so you put them in. But at another time, at the end of the season, when everything has wilted, it is a time to uproot and throw them on the compost pile. A time to kill, a time to heal, and so on. And so we have this poem which takes all these unpredictable extremes of life and it says that actually each one is appropriate, even war, even death, at the right time. And I think the aim of this poem is to comfort us that in the uncertainties of life, there is a time for certain things. In fact, sometimes this poem is read at funerals to comfort people. It is a poem of comfort. And yet, in typical Ecclesiastes style, King Solomon wrecks it. King Solomon is going to pull the rug out from under us because life is not that simple. In fact, in the next few verses, King Solomon says he doesn't like this poem. The poem is not a comfort, it is a burden. Have a look down at verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This beauty in its time, King Solomon calls a burden. Why? God has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. See, there may be a time for everything. The problem is we can't work it out. We can't begin to fathom God's timing of things. Sure, there might be a time to keep and a time to throw away, but how does that help you when you open the wardrobe cupboard, you pull out that old shirt that's all ripped, and you're wondering, should I mend it? Should I rip it up more and use it for rags? Should I hold on to it? Should I throw it to Vinny's? I think it's a time to keep because I love old shirts. Jill thinks it's a time to throw away. I've had it for 20 years. The problem is, what does God think? Is it a time to keep or a time to throw away? Ecclesiastes doesn't help us. It says, well, there's a time to keep and a time to throw away. And if you get it right, well, everything's beautiful in its time. I mean, thanks, King Solomon. That's about as helpful as a horoscope. Last year, Jill bought a new bike and we were wondering what to do with the old one. Should we keep it in case someone needs a bike? Should we get rid of it? We decided to get rid of it. So sure, just a month later, Catherine, we find out, wants a lady's bike. We should have kept it. Or I was talking to Alan Blanche last week. He went to a conference in 1994, and he held on to the booklet from that conference where he made his notes for 16 years, never once looking at it. 
This year he had a clean-up. He threw out the book. Within a few weeks of throwing it out, you guessed it, he needed it. He wanted to look up his notes. And so this poem about everything being beautiful in its time is not a great comfort. In fact, King Solomon calls it a burden because God might know the times for people to be born and die and so on, but we certainly don't. So we're left here bumbling along, trying to guess what's the best option. Life is so uncertain, life is unclear. And in fact, don't look it up, but over in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon will come back to this idea talking about farming, where his conclusion is, you just got to get on with life, because if you try and wait for the right time for everything, you'll be paralysed into doing nothing. So in chapter 11 he says, well, forget the timing, just give it a go. He says, whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And you do, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. And so that is the problem of life under the sun. Things are uncertain. As we read on in chapter 3, though, we hit the biggest uncertainty of all, that is death. Because not only do we not know when we'll die, we don't know what will happen after we die. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. Now remember here, King Solomon is talking about life under the sun. Life as we can observe it for ourselves, not life from the Bible. And as we observe this world, what do we notice about people? We notice that people die seemingly just like animals. Verse 20, all go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Now, I think it's worth asking the question, why is King Solomon suddenly talking about spirits and what comes after we die? If King Solomon really is just talking about life under the sun, as we can observe it, without a Bible open, wouldn't you just assume that when we die, that's it? The end? If we're just animals, if we're just atoms, when we die, isn't that the end? Why all this talk about what comes after we die or where our spirit goes, where does King Solomon get that from? Well, I think King Solomon is suggesting that even with our Bibles closed, as we think about life, observing the world, we know there's something more. How do we know? He tells us in chapter 3, back at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. See, God has put eternity in your heart. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, God has written into each one of us the knowledge that there is more to this life than this life. But we can't work out by ourselves what it is. We can't work out about the afterlife just by poking around the world. I take it that's why in pretty much every culture and religion around the world there is some idea of an afterlife. We know in our hearts, even if we've never read a Bible, that there's more to life than life. But if we don't listen to God, we are just left guessing as to what the afterlife is. And so there are as many ideas about the afterlife as there are cultures. We're reincarnated. We go up to the great spirit in the sky. We cease to exist. We go on as a ghost or as a spirit or as a soul or something. We go to some kind of heaven. We become one with Mother Nature. Who knows? And that is exactly where King Solomon ends up. He observes about life after the sun that there's more to life, but we can't work it out. Verse 21 of Ecclesiastes 3. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Who knows? Life is so uncertain. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone what will happen after we die. That is life under the sun, life as we observe it. And that's why King Solomon concludes, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. At that point I asked myself, why is Ecclesiastes in the Bible? Why look around the world and try and work out life? But I suggested when we were looking at chapter 1 that the reason Ecclesiastes is in the Bible is to help us appreciate the meaning that Jesus brings to life. See, Ecclesiastes is getting us to ask the questions about life that only Jesus has answers to and that couldn't be more true, true than when we're thinking about life after death because life as a follower of Jesus is completely different. When it comes to what happens after we die, Jesus brings clarity and certainty. Jesus is greater than King Solomon, remember, and Jesus is the expert of life after death because he's been there and come back again. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll leave Ecclesiastes there until next week. 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter of the Bible all about Death and life after death. And it's all about the certainty that we can have because of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15. Before we read it, though, have a little skip down to verse 32. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, 1 Corinthians 15 says that the eat and drink for tomorrow we die view of Ecclesiastes is actually the way that we should live if there's no resurrection. But 1 Corinthians 15 has a different way to live. Come back to verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. In those first two verses, we find out that God doesn't leave us looking around the world guessing about life and life after death. He has spoken to us. In those verses, Paul describes the gospel, God's message about the world. It's not something that you can work out just by looking around the world. It's something God tells us. Verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures. God's good news is this, that Jesus Christ died for sins. Now that is good news enough that Jesus died so that we can be forgiven and be God's friends, that all the wrong we've done can be forgiven. But there's more, verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. See, Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. And it's not something that was made up. It's something that was witnessed by over 500 people. Paul lists some of them here. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, certain things follow. The first thing that follows is that we who follow him will be raised too. Verse 22. Look down to verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, when he comes, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Jesus' resurrection is like the trailer of a movie. It is a taste of what is coming. It's the firstfruits of a harvest. It's a sign of more to come. What is the more to come? The more to come is us who follow Jesus. We will be raised. And that's what Paul talks about down in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. See, this is what King Solomon couldn't work out. Life after death, what it looks like, how you can be sure of it. And so the best King Solomon could, 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 could come up with was, well, make the most out of this life. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. That is not the best way to live. There is a day coming that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be raised. You will be given a new body and you will be taken into a new perfect creation. And because now we are clear about the future, because now, if we're followers of Jesus, we can be certain about what will come after we die, we must live differently now. And that's where Paul ends up in verse 57. Have a look at the last two verses of this chapter. 
Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. We have just found what King Solomon was looking for in Ecclesiastes, but he never found. Something that will last. Something that is worth living for. You know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. What this means for you as a follower of Jesus is that everything you do matters. Everything you do. Because you do it in the Lord. From brushing your teeth in the morning to doing the ironing, from fixing cars to doing the cooking, from watching TV to making love, from choosing what clothes to wear to going shopping, everything matters. Because how you conduct yourself here now ripples into eternity. Everything we do, we can do as to the Lord. All those things matter. Your cheerfulness as you do them. Your dependence on God as you go about your daily life. Your contentment as you drive the kids to school. What you pray for as you do the ironing or the washing up. How you react when you smash yourself in the thumb at work. How you react when things go well. Your attitude as you work, it all matters because you do those things as a follower of Jesus. And people are watching. 1 Peter 2 says this, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, your everyday life in front of other people has consequences into eternity. 2 Thessalonians says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. See? Working with your hands, minding your own business, and your daily life matters into eternity. Titus 2 says about women, they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Why? So that no one will malign the word of God. How we behave in our home matters. Every detail of your life matters. It all has implications into eternity. And if all of those mundane parts of life matter, how much more the things that are directly related to the gospel? That Sunday school class that you teach. Reading the Bible with your family or with your friends. Praying for other people. Talking to people about Jesus. The letters that you write to prisoners. Your small group. The hard work and effort that you put into those things, even when you don't feel like it, 
It's not wasted. Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, it's meaningless. But life in Jesus is filled with meaning. Everything, absolutely everything you do is flooded with meaning. So remember, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you haven't left us just trying to guess what life is about and work it out for ourselves. But thank you that in your word you reveal to us what life is all about. And it's all about knowing you. And Father, thank you that you don't just show us what life is about. You actually sent your son into the world so that we can be forgiven and know you. Father, thank you that because of what Jesus did on the Christ's cross, that we can be certain about eternal life. And Father, we pray that we might live here now with a view to eternity. We pray that we might just have that idea in our minds of how significant everything that we do is. And we pray that we might live our entire lives for Jesus. Father, we pray that we might, that, that we might bring him great glory. We pray these things in his name. Amen.